and we'll be starting this series in Ecclesiastes. I want to start with a question, actually. Could you put your hand up if you know the names of all your great-grandparents? Nobody? Second question was if you knew their occupation, but I don't think we'll go there. <laughs> okay, I do know the names of my great-grandparents. But I'll be honest, it's only because my mum looked them up and did the research. So I've got them written in my Bible here. John Hodgson Tyndall, born in Lancaster, 1887. Mary Blake, born in 1891. John William Malone, born in Didsbury, 1891. Ellen Condren, born in Chilton, 1893. George Hampson, from Macclesfield, 1887. Elizabeth Eleanor Edwards, 1889. Leonard Diggle, 1886, and Rose Annie Godfrey from Oldham, 1886. I actually only know one occupation, which was that one of them was a farmer from Lancaster. There they are, great-grandparents. A few years ago, we were driving past Southern Cemetery down on Princess Road, and my parents, who were with us in the car, said, oh, some of your great-grandparents are buried in there. Really, I said, whereabouts? I don't know. And so I thought, you know, one of these days I'm going to go and look up and try and find out where they are. But I haven't done it yet. I just haven't got around to it. And if I'm honest, I probably never will because I'm just too busy with life. Yet my great grandparents were born, raised, worked, lived, loved, laughed, wept had children, grew old, died. They had hopes just like you. They had dreams and fears. They had aspirations just like you and me. What did they wish for? What did they want their lives to, to, to mean? Did they want to count for something more? We will never know. They're almost forgotten. Only a few traces of their existence remain in the official records. It's almost as if they'd never lived at all. There is no living memory. Whatever they worked for ultimately is of no gain to my great-grandparents. And it will be the same for you too. The English poet Shelley captured this in a great poem called Ozymandias. It's about a traveler who's traveling in, the, in some uh, far eastern country. He comes upon a ruin in the desert. And he realizes that it's actually the remains of a statue to one of the greatest kings who ever lived. Here's how the poem goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing else remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. All the power, all the glory, all the fame of the greatest rulers are gone in time. And all that remains is the sand, the world keeps turning. Even the very greatest are ultimately insignificant and then forgotten. 
So what's the point? Now you may be thinking, this is a cheerful way to start a Sunday morning. Indeed it is. But we do need to bring questions like these into the open because they're actually there in all of our hearts. What's the point? It's a question that's always lying there, usually under the surface. Perhaps we're embarrassed to ask it. And many people in our culture are now finding that they are asking it and they have no answer. They may be affluent, they may be educated, they may be talented, but they come up against this question and they find they have no answer. What is the point? They conclude that there is no point and then some of them conclude that the only way forward is to take their own life. I've been connected to a few such people in the last few years. My great uncle took his own life. A university student in the prime of life. A professional man who had a wife and children and the teenage son of a fine Christian leader. All known to us, all gone. What's the point? Now if you ask this question of life, life will not give you the answer. But happily, the Bible does have a whole book devoted to such questions. And that's where we're going to spend the next couple of months as a church, God willing. This book has traditionally been called Ecclesiastes. And traditionally, it's been thought to have been written by King Solomon, although the writer never actually reveals his name. A better name, probably, is Koheleth, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H, which is how the writer, the author, introduces himself in verse 1. He says, the words of the teacher... Uh, or leader of the assembly and the Hebrew word is koaleth which means something like the one who assembles together or the one who's part of the assembly it's somewhat to do with gathering people together and sharing wisdom from God he's been variously called the teacher or the preacher or the professor he's a wise guide reflecting on life and this book has been called by some a wild and strange wonder some other people have thought of it as peculiar Some have questioned why it's in the Bible at all. It's not what we expect from a religious book. It hardly mentions God. And a lot of the time it's talking about life that seems to have no purpose. But as I've read and studied Ecclesiastes recently, I've become convinced that it is a book for our times. Because it's a book that raises the questions that are raised by a secular world, which is the world we live in. It has a unique appeal, this book, to thinkers, to artists, creatives and to sensitive people who were prepared to ask hard questions so perhaps this next couple of months would be a good time to pluck up your courage and invite some of your skeptical friends to church praying like crazy all the time ecclesiastes has inspired writers including shakespeare tolstoy robbie burns and ernest hemingway in his book, The Sun Also Rises. It's inspired filmmakers. It's quoted in the films Gattaca, Platoon, and Footloose. Bono, lead singer of U2, said that Ecclesiastes gives the key to understanding their classic album, Actong Baby. And then there's a, a number one song, To Everything There Is a Season, Turn, 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 which was a folk song that became a number one hit for the birds in 1965 in America. This song is entirely made up of words from Ecclesiastes. And I think we should ask the musicians at the church if they can learn it and sing it to us when we get to chapter three. And I'm sure some of them would be up for the challenge. Now, why is this book so popular? Because it asks the questions we want to ask, but we don't know how. 
And the way it handles the questions is unique. We're going to find this. Often the writer sounds like he doesn't believe in God at all. He changes voice. He seems to change persona. It's like he's trying on different things. He's trying on different masks. He's an explorer of the limits of life, looking for truth, looking for satisfaction. And he wants to show us life as it really is and ultimately to lead us to wisdom. Now the book ends with a punchline. I'm going to give it away now. If you want to turn over to chapter 12, we see how he ends up, the person who presents the book. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. This is the punchline. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, at the end of the day, we're going to conclude that we, there is a God. We need to respect him and give him the awe and reverence that he deserves and that everything in our lives matters. Everything in our lives matters. God will judge. So it has got this orthodox conclusion, but we're going to take many strange twists and turns to get to that point. And today we begin at the beginning in chapter 1. So if you want to turn back to there, we see the words of this teacher who looks us straight in the eye and asks what is the point? And I have got one sentence today which encapsulates this message. So if you, wanna, if you, if you are a note taker, you want to write this down. Here's the sentence. It's got three parts. Life is just a breath and work has no profit apart from God. Life is just a breath and work has no profit apart from God. Firstly, life is just a breath. No other book of the Bible is built around a single word like this one. But Ecclesiastes has this key word that keeps cropping up, and it actually occurs in the book 38 times. And a massive statement about this, about the book, frames the beginning and the end, and it uses this word. And here it is in our version in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And the book nearly ends with that same statement. However, it's not a very good translation. It's so important to understand what's being said. We're going to spend a few minutes just on this one word. In the Hebrew language, it's the word hevel. H-E-B-E-L. Hevel. But the big problem is that there's no exact equivalent in English to hevel. And our translation is quite unhelpful because all the way through Ecclesiastes... The Bible that we're using in the church, the New International Version, uh, uses the word meaningless. But the problem is it doesn't mean meaningless all the time. Hebel literally means breath. A breath. A vapor. Just think back to the winter. It shouldn't be too hard. It lasted for six months. <laughs> think back to the winter and remember breathing out on a cold day and what do you see you see your breath you see it and what happens next it's gone that's Hevel it's just a breath Psalm 144 says Lord what are human beings that you care for them mere mortals that you think of them they are like a breath Hevel their days are like a fleeting shadow. When Hevel is used in that kind of way, a non-literal way, it means one of three things. Firstly, it can mean something fleeting and temporary, something that just 
It's transient, it's gone. Or it can mean something that's empty and meaningless. Or thirdly, it can mean something you can't control. Have you ever tried to control your breath when you've breathed it out? Can't get it. It's gone. The writer says it's like grasping after the wind. Now all these meanings, something that's short-lived and transient, something that's empty and meaningless, something that you can't control, all these three meanings are in this word hevel, they're kind of wrapped up in it, and our writer is going to use it through the book in different ways. Sometimes he'll be talking about the brevity of things. Sometimes he'll be saying you can't control reality. And sometimes he'll be saying life is so meaningless, in fact sometimes things are just absurd. And because of that, life is often futile and frustrating. I was trying to think of a way to put all this into English, so I reached out to some of my friends on Twitter. And I put a tweet out this week to Bible scholars and preachers all around the world. How did you translate Hevel? And two of them replied. One said, fleeting, and the other said, fluff. Fleeting, fluff that leads to futility and frustration. All the Fs. Fleeting fluff that leads to futility and frustration. You get the sense of it? Just a breath. Every, he says everything is just a breath. Robert Alter is a professor of Hebrew at the University of California, Berkeley. He translates verse one like this. Merest breath, merest breath, all is mere breath. And the book ends, chapter 12, verse eight, with the same words. It says literally, the Hevel of Hevels. Strong statement. And this is how writers create emphasis in the Bible. They say, the holy of holies. It means the most holy place. Super holy. They talk about the heaven of heavens. And they mean the highest heaven. And now here we have breath of breaths. It means really breath-like. Breathy just fleeting and empty and out of control as you can get and that's what he says everything is the breath of breaths just breath and that is the big theme of the book everything is just a breath and Ecclesiastes is going to demonstrate this by looking at all the things that you and I turn to for meaning and significance and one by one he exposes that they're empty and they're transient and you can't control them he will look at education He'll look at work, career. He'll look at power. He'll look at pleasure and sex. He'll look at happiness. And he'll even look at history. And he says they're all just a breath. And at the end of the book, he talks about the inevitable decline and decay of old age and our death. In other words, he's saying, your life is extremely brief and you can't hold on to it or control it. Now, this is not necessarily comfortable reading, is it? This isn't exactly what we want to hear. Some people at our church started reading Ecclesiastes this week. Some of them read it all the way through in a, in a small group. One woman said to me, I'm not sure it was a good idea. I have realized that most of my life is actually meaningless. Thank you. Do you know, actually, that's a positive. Because it is making her think again and to see things differently seeing things differently. Let me give you an illustration uh, from a friend of mine. His name is John Standridge. He's a church planter in Texas. He had problems with his eyes as a child. His eyes wouldn't line up and he had really bad double vision. So he said he'd go towards a door and he'd see two doorknobs 
literally. It's quite far apart. And he said, I'd always find I was grabbing the wrong one. Try the other one. So while he was at school, he had surgery of the most invasive kind. They operated on his eyes. And at one point, he said he had stitches in his eyes. And he told of an appointment where the doctor was tightening the stitches and asking him, can you see one image now? Can you imagine that? Some of you do this for a living. I hope that never happens to me. But this is what Ecclesiastes intends to do for you spiritually, to operate on you in such a way that you get a unified vision of life. But it will be uncomfortable. And the first area he's going to go after is our work, our toil, what we put all so much effort into. So remember the first point, life is just a breath. The second point, work has no profit. Look at verse 3. What do you gain from all your labor at which you toil under the sun? Here's the point. Work has no profit. Whatever activity you spend most of your time doing, it doesn't ultimately yield a profit to you. He asks, what do you gain from it? And he's implying nothing. Now this word gain is a commercial word. It's used in the marketplace. It's a business word. Gain is what you'd have left over once you've finished trading. It's the money, the profit. What's the profit from all your toiling? He says, nothing. You, you gain nothing. Look at how he unpacks him in verse 4. He says, you know, we come and go. We make no real impact on the earth. Verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. We're like ants crawling on a rock. By evening they are gone and they made no impact. They have no legacy. They are utterly inconsequential. And so are you. And so is your work. In reality, nothing changes as a result of all your toil. Nothing is gained, especially by you. Verse 5 he looks at the creation, the sun. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. It hurries back. The word here is often translated pants. And I don't mean the pants that you're wearing under your trousers. The sun is panting and gasping. It's on the clock. It's got to go round and round, gasping for breath, trying to get back to where it started again. And it doesn't attain anything by going round and round. It's just mere toil. There's no opportunity for rest. It's all breathless, treadmill-like repetition. What about the wind? Verse 6. Well, at least you would think the wind is free. What does he say? The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. We even have a saying, don't we? As free as the wind? And it seems to be. Well, he looks at the wind and he sees that it has to return to its course. Round and round it goes. Even the wind is stuck in a rut. Even the wind follows a fixed path and nothing is gained. They can predict the pattern of winds, the trade winds, because they are fixed. Verse 7, we think about the sea and the water. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All the streams in the world are flowing into the seas and the oceans constantly. Yet they are never full. They are never filled up. Now, you know that the sea isn't full because of evaporation and the clouds and the clouds bringing rain back to the land. But that's not the point of this verse. The point is, all the activity shows no results. There is no gain for the sea. 
it doesn't ever fill up it just keeps going on and on and on the whole world is a scene of incessant movement and activity but is it purposeful for all the constant motion you would think that something is being accomplished but no even as the millennia come and go millions of years any semblance of progress is just a fantasy activity abounds everything's in motion like a hamster in a wheel but no destination is ever reached this display of cosmic exertion is all for nothing and if the basic elements of the world the sun the wind the sea if they gain nothing from all their toil then surely human beings gain nothing we're only here for a day just think about your toil for a minute what do you spend your time toiling doing your toil of child rearing what do you anyone here toiling at rearing children what do you gain from it at the end of the day my wife and I once added up and realized that we'd been changing nappies for 10 years solid <laughs> 10 years I just dread to think of, of that nappy mountain somewhere dread to think then we had a break and then we had another child what do you get out of it a bad back a mortgage and some children who want to live their own lives oh and by the way your great grandchildren they won't even remember your name <laughs> you're the living proof of that <laughs> students anyone got any GCSEs at the moment exams papers to write yeah some of you students are toiling for exams and papers and even dissertations burning the candle staying up late you get up early you've got your memory cards you're trying to cram it all in oh brain hurts what will you gain from it who is going to read that dissertation really <laughs> you know in 20 years time you won't even remember that you wrote it <laughs> I have got my undergraduate folders hidden in the loft because my wife tries to find them and throw them away so I have to find more and more obscure places to put the box because I might need it one day, okay? Actually, I finished university in 1993 and this year I did go and look in the folder for something that I'd done on The Great Gatsby for my son. I found some essays in there that I had no recollection of writing or reading the books that they were about. In fact, I w if you'd have told me, I would have said it was someone else's work except it was my handwriting and no I had no recollection of all those that toil of study Nottingham University those years ago you academics your toil of research you spend years and ye years toiling to get that paper published where you get the second named author and there it is in an obscure journal that nobody ever reads gathering dust in the library waiting for someone else to disprove it sorry <laughs> you doctors your toil of healing all the hours that you work we had a doctor at our church a few years ago from Austria she said I love working in Britain because I never do more than 90 hours a week what I didn't realize there were 90 hours in a week <laughs> what do you gain from it 
There'll always be more and more patience, won't there? More and more sickness, more and more shifts. What do you gain? Does anything ever change? You business people, working like a slave to win the business, to transact it, close the deal, make the bonus. Half the time you feel you can't keep your head above water, and the other half the time you think you're not very good at what you do, and someone's going to find out. There are those elusive moments when you get the bonus, but don't forget tax. The government will take a bite. My last year in the business world, I was 34, I realized at the end of the year I'd paid 20,000 pounds in tax. 20,000 pounds! I could really use that money now. Teachers, all the toil of teaching, lesson plans, marking, reviewing things, filling in whatever paperwork the government decides to give you next. How much will those kids remember? They say no one forgets a good teacher. Really? How many pupils will remember you in 100 years' time? All this activity, it shows no results. There is no gain. Hang on a minute, there are a few people who climb to the top, aren't there? There are a few exceptionally gifted people who really make a difference. Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, William Shakespeare, except they're not sure if it was him who wrote it. Perhaps one of the most poignant examples of the supremely gifted person is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, the brilliant, creative businessman who revolutionized six industries. He started Apple computers in his parents' garage in 1976. By 2011, it was the most valuable company in the world. And it still is. At the time of his death, his net worth was estimated at over $10 billion. $10 billion? I mean, you, how would you spend that much money? I think my wife could, but I'd have trouble. Now, Jobs was ruthless and famously intense and rude. People talked about him having a reality distortion field. He could change reality. He could go into a room with a team and he could stare, he'd stare them in the eye. Some people think he had narcissistic personality disorder. He could stare them in the eye and he was so charismatic and clever and ruthless. He could convince them that they could do something that was impossible and they went away and do it. That's how Apple came up with all those incredible products. Amazing. The thing about Jobs is he really wasn't interested in making money. That was kind of a byproduct. He wanted to change the world. He famously said to his teams, I want to put a dent in the universe, don't you? Put a dent in the universe. Make a mark that will last. How did it work out for Steve? He developed pancreatic cancer. He died at the age of 56. 56 doesn't look that old to me now. Apple is still the biggest company in the world, but what gain was it to Steve Jobs in the end? Somebody interviewed him um, shortly before his death. He was, he was like a bone by the end. The cancer had eaten him up. And he wasn't feeling well. He was sitting in a, in a garden in a sunny afternoon, reflecting on death. He talked about his experiences in India, his study of Buddhism, his views on reincarnation. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. 
but he admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of his desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. And so I really want to believe that something survives, and maybe your consciousness endures. And then he felt silent for a very long time, and he said, on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. I don't want to believe you can just be turned off. But reality has this way of catching up with us. It's the way the world is put together. So Ecclesiastes concludes in verse 8. Have a look with me. All things are wearisome. That's the summary of the world situation. Everything is weary. It's just tired. And what about humanity? How do we respond to that situation of the world being wearisome? The rest of verse 8 answers that this same kind of ceaseless activity is mirrored in human life. Verse 8 says, All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. There's a sense of deep dissatisfaction here and lack of fulfillment. We can never hear and learn enough. We can never see and experience enough. It always goes in and it always leaves us empty. Like the sea, we're never full. So verse 9, he continues, history repeats itself. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, you know the old saying, the only thing history teaches us is that history teaches us nothing. Ecclesiastes could have written it. But in verse 10, he anticipates an objection. Hold on a minute. He says, someone's going to say, surely this is new. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. After all, the world hasn't had iPads before. There's something new. Now, St. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the early Christian church, African theologian, talked about this, and he said, we've got to understand that Ecclesiastes is talking about the type of things which doesn't change, even if the individual product might change, or the individual person. Birth, babies, they don't change. Work, marriage, death, war. These things have already been here long ago, and they always will be. Even an iPad is basically a tool. Human beings have been developing tools since the year dot. An iPad is basically the latest stone axe or sharpened stick. And it costs a lot more. And it, to add insult to injury, verse 11 points out that human beings have very short memories. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of people of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. How many generations are in view there? Now, there's the ones of old, and there's now, and then there's the ones to come, and then the ones that follow them. Nobody remembers, he says. People won't remember you. So what have you gained from all your toil? Where is the profit to you? Now, this is undercutting some of our very deep aspirations to have some kind of permanent place in the world, isn't it? To be remembered, not just to be a, a nothing. The heart cries out, I want a legacy. I want my life to count for something. And Ecclesiastes replies, you won't have one. People have had mountains and cities named after them, 
and they died and what did later people do change the names people have had buildings constructed in their memory with their name on them but in the end the buildings crumble possibly the greatest Christian preacher of the 19th century was a Scotsman called Alexander McLaren he was world famous he preached for more than 50 years on Oxford Road right here in Manchester uh, at the end of his, his life just after he died they built a building in his memory it's called the McLaren Memorial Institute built in the memory of the great Christian preacher Alexander McLaren it's just off Platt Lane do you know what that building is now? a mosque Alexander McLaren's memory people have written books even hardback books but in the end the books go out of print so is that it life is just a breath and all your toil there's no profit in it remember what I said at the start this is how Ecclesiastes works he wants to push the limits of human life to find wisdom He's made his case that there is no profit from all our toil, so this too is hevel, breath. Fleeting fluff that leads to futility and frustration. But there is something more going on than just that. As one little phrase reveals, and we're going to see this phrase is coming up through the book. Have a look with me in verse 3 and verse 9, and see this phrase, under the sun. Verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun verse 9 what has been will be again what has been done will be done again there is nothing new under the sun now this little phrase means living in this world without taking God into account living in this world without taking God into account it's living life as if all there is is the sun and everything underneath and there's nobody above there's nobody governing there's no great wise all-knowing all-loving God there's nothing above there's no one out there it's just all we've got is under the sun okay the flat world the horizontal world there's no point praying your prayer won't go above the ceiling and this is what we call the secular life life without God and this is the key to what he's saying if you live in this world without taking God into account there is no profit for you in all your toil and in the end it is all just breath if you're living under the sun but your heart cries out for more than that doesn't it and so does mine and the message of the whole bible is that there is much much more than that because it is not all under the sun and we know this because one came from outside and he came into our world he became one of us and when he was grown and teaching and doing ministry he asked people what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul what does it profit where's the gain his name was Jesus Christ and he told a story one time that I want to close with it's found in the gospel of Luke I'll read it out to you chapter 12 Jesus said a parable the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop and he thought to himself what shall I do I have no place to store my crops and then he said this is what I'll do I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to myself you have plenty of good things laid up for many years take life easy eat drink and be merry but God said to him you fool this very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you've prepared for yourself 
This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. That's what it will be like if we, if, we, if we toil and store up things for ourselves. We think that will be our profit, but we're not rich toward God. Our life will go and it will be just a breath and we will have gained nothing. So how can we live differently? It's by realizing that there's another way, which is life under the sun, S-O-N, Jesus. Life under Jesus, life with Jesus as your ruler and king and lord and saviour, you find that life can be made new. It's not all meaningless and, and toilsome. It has a future. Yes, the world is in bondage and frustration, and we're unable to find satisfaction in it. We can't control it. We can't even alter it for long. But Jesus Christ can and did open the way of understanding and escape from all that because he has done a new thing. And he's the only person in history who did. He rose from the dead. The empty tomb is the proof that death is not the end. There is a new future waiting for those who follow Jesus. Jesus said he created a new covenant, a new agreement by which people would relate to him. He said he would give you new birth. You could be born again by faith in his name, a new life, even as a grown-up. He said, I'll give you a new commandment that you love each other just as I have loved you and he sent his Holy Spirit to us so that we can live in newness of life Jesus gives us a new name the Bible says that will last forever in a new heavens and a new earth a new creation everything in the world is old and passing away everything is cyclical and going round and round and round everything is decaying but Jesus changes all of that he raised from the dead and he secured our future and he promises a new way for you if you trust him and follow him and lay down your old way of life and make Jesus your Lord so in light of all that what are you living for today what are you investing your, your hopes in your life in can you see how pointless it is if it's not Jesus Christ what are you toiling for wearing yourself out If you're a Christian here, let me ask you, friends, is your life distinctive from the world around you, from your neighbors and family and friends, or does it look barely distinguishable, particularly with regard to what you're toiling for? What happens with your salary, your income? What happens with your children? Are you investing in them, or do you see them as a gift from God to be invested in God's kingdom? What are you building with your life? Bigger barns? can be taken away like that or are you living a life that is rich towards God what does man woman gain from all their toil at which they toil under the sun the answer is nothing unless you're doing it under Jesus Christ let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in all its parts and we thank you for this ancient book that's full of wisdom that's very modern. Help us to hear it. Help us to heed it and to take its lessons to heart. Forgive us that we often try and live as though this world is all about us and our work and our lives and our legacy. How foolish we are. 
Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, to see in him our life, our hope, our future. We pray in his name. Amen.